Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine. That's Premier Christianity Magazine. It's the monthly publication that I edit and it sponsors this show. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest edition, you can go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we will happily send you a free copy of the latest issue. But today on The Profile, I'm pleased to say I'm speaking to Alexander McLean. Alexander is the founder and director general of African Prisons Project. He trained as a barrister and magistrate, and during gap year travels to East Africa, he fundraised to provide better health facilities and educate inmates in Ugandan prisons about the law. In 2007, he moved to Kampala, where he created a team of local and international staff and volunteers to develop the work of the African Prisons Project. And we're going to hear lots more about what that project involves in a few moments' time. He's also a senior TED Fellow and UK Young Philanthropist of the Year. He appeared in Times 30 Under 30, Changing the World and The Power List, featuring Britain's most influential people of African and African-Caribbean heritage. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's good to be with you. Thank you for your generous introduction. You're very, very welcome. It really is quite the introduction. I mean, you're in, you're in your thirties. Do you find yourself thinking, "Wow, I mean, what's what's next?" I mean, not many people in their thirties can list quite that many number of awards and recognitions. I count myself as a really fortunate guy. Uh, when I was 16, I started volunteering at Trinity Hospice in Clapham, and I quickly aware became aware that life wasn't owed to any of us. I remember um, being with a teenage girl who was dying of a brain tumour, and it um, made me mindful of how precious our time is. And so I try to live my life in an intentional way. Um, the awards uh, are nice in as far as they help to raise the profile of prisoners in Africa who aren't at the top of many people's agenda. Yeah. But I think the greatest challenge is what it looks like to live with love and kindness and to be a good uh, husband and a good parent. Mm, sure. So, um, I mean, as I understand it, some of these the themes you've already mentioned, I mean, this was kind of part of your life from quite an, quite an early age. I mean, not many nine-year-olds are sort of reading about the civil rights movement and uh, wanting to understand the law, but, but this seemed to be part of your life from quite an early age, didn't it? My dad always said, why can't you be a normal son? <laughs> so I think my interests and focus in life was never particularly uh, conventional. Yeah, so uh, it surprised even your parents? Yeah, for sure. So, so, surprise you... is one way of putting it. <laughs> so if, if, that wasn't, if that wasn't necessarily, you know, the love of the law, for example, if that wasn't necessarily instilled from your parents, where do you think that, that came from? Uh, my grandma had a very um, powerful um, impact in shaping me. She was uh, 75 when I was born. She was born in uh, 1910. She only left the UK once in 1922 to go to France, where she said she was almost taken to the white slave trade. She was really part of a very different um, generation, but she loved me fiercely um, and um, she overpampered me. I was 15, she was 90, and I'd stay with her and she'd wake up early, make my breakfast, make me a packed lunch, <laughs> get my uniform ready. She'd walk to the bus stop with me. And I think that that um, love that she showed me and that belief she had in me gave me a confidence and courage uh, in life. And uh, with the African Prisons Project, I hope that we're building a community that loves uh, each other. Uh, um, 
and serves with love and love changes things sure so tell me where i guess the kind of love for africa where that first came from in your early life growing up my mum had worked for an airline so by the time i was 16 i'd been to about 50 countries i was really fortunate to uh, travel a lot but never to africa Uh, i volunteered at trinity hospice when i was 16 i read in the saturday telegraph magazine about a hospice in kampala in uganda I was really becoming interested in how dying people were looked after and this hospice sounded amazing, looking after people dying in their homes of cancer and AIDS and other uh, conditions. I wrote asking if I could volunteer after my GCSEs but they said I was too young and refused to have me. came from a family that didn't really have a history of going to university. I'd had my heart set on going to Oxford. I wanted to study geography and then to do law. Um, I did my A-levels. I was one of the top 10 in the UK in geography, but Oxford said I couldn't think laterally and rejected me. I decided to take a year out. I didn't have plans for it. But the hospice in Uganda said now I was 18, they'd have me. And so I decided I'd go. Initially, it was agreed with my parents. I'd go for two weeks. So my mum said, you're throwing your life away for nothing. And she got shingles the day I left. And that two weeks turned into six months um, and had a transformative uh, impact in my life. Yeah. Tell me me in some more detail what, um, what you saw while you were there. My eyes were opened in very many ways. I spent my first month going on home visits with the hospice doctors and nurses. It was fascinating. And I saw people dying often in very modest circumstances with huge uh, dignity and grace. And um, they offered me hospitality. There wasn't very much I could do to be useful as a non-medical person. Sometimes my contribution was to say a prayer. But one day I went with the hospice team to Malago, which is Uganda's national referral hospital, where they were taking morphine to a dying man on one of the general medical wards. As we went on to this ward, I saw a man lying on the floor by the toilet, naked, on a plastic sheet. I said to a nurse, what's the deal with him? And she said, well, the police found him unconscious in a market. We think he's diabetic and in a diabetic coma. We don't know his name if he's got any relatives waiting for him to die because he doesn't have any money he doesn't get care and he was lying in a pool of wee the flesh in his bottom and back was rotten down to the bone he was decomposing while he was still alive i went back to the hospice and i spoke to dr Anne merriman who founded hospice africa she's worked in africa since 1960 um, as a doctor and um, for a big period of her life she was a nun she said with someone like that even if he's going to die he can die when he feels uh, loved and cared about so i went back the next day and bought a basin and a bar of soap and a towel found a nurse who'd been trained by the hospice to help me we tied bandages around our noses because of how this guy stank and we washed him together i tried to get him some clothes and some bedding and to advocate for him with the doctors and nurses for five days i um, washed him and advocated and i came the sixth day and he died the night before he was lying dead and naked on the floor and after a while a porter came with a trolley with a dead woman on it and put the man on top of the woman and said they'd go in a mass grave with everyone else who had no one to bury them. And it was really a turning point in my life because I realised that there are people in our world whose lives are judged to have no value and who live and die like dogs. I remember calling my mum that evening and um, crying for him. And it, it um, I was moved deeply. And um, my understanding of Jesus is that um, his, his example and his challenge is for us to love. And in that situation love didn't look very um, complicated so I spent the next three months on that hospital ward with people um, dying of HIV and AIDS uh, with tuberculosis who'd been abandoned by their families washing them and feeding them um, and trying to make them feel loved and I I formed this little band of um, student nurses and gardeners from the hospice I was staying at and security guards people without much money without um, much power um, but we try to love together and it it 
taught me really deep lessons about um, the joy that can be part of uh, that can come from being part of being a community that's loving and serving together mm-hmm. of understanding what it looks like to step out in faith my understanding of Jesus's life was that we're we're called as Christians to love even when people in very difficult circumstances but it was a bit scary and these there are many patients with TB and the nurses had their windows open they said well a bit of TB makes you strong <laughs> but um, I was trying to understand what it looked like to take steps in faith, trusting that God would yeah. meet me um, as I did so. Um, and there was no looking back. And I met prisoners there um, and I was intrigued by them. Right. And so the story continues and, and you move from, I guess, uh, working in that, volunteering in that hospice to, to working in prisons. And we'll come on to that in a moment. But you mentioned already, you know, saying prayers for people and your understanding of of Jesus and how Jesus calls us to love and I guess it's one thing to believe that theologically and another thing to sit alongside someone who's dying in terrible conditions and, and demonstrate that love practically and that's what you're able to do but but where did that understanding of, of God being real and Jesus calling us to love where did that first come from in your life? Um, growing up we, we didn't go to church as a family um, I went to a school, it wasn't a faith school, but every day we had assembly with um, prayers and um, hymns. And as long as I can um, remember, I've prayed. My grandma, the one who um, spoiled and moulded me, um, had a quiet but strong faith. Um, and so I guess seeds were planted in me there. I had a great aunt um, who died when I was 15 and her funeral was at a Pentecostal church. I went to her funeral and it was more vibrant <laughs> than, than the Anglican church services I'd been to um, on a regular Sunday. And so I became intrigued and I started going along to um, New Testament assembly in Tooting. I was baptised there when I was 16. Right. Um, and th- th- being part of that community was also very formative. I saw... Um, Mostly it was Windrush generation, right, Jamaicans yeah. and other West Indians um, who would um, be addressed to the nines for church. And um, it was noisy and loud and um, vibrant, uh, but there was a strong sense of community and having each other's backs. And when I was um, 18 and I saw these things um, in Uganda and I went into prison, I went and reported back to this church. There was just this outpouring of love and support wow. from people who didn't necessarily have loads of money, but um, they blessed me financially and then they went to buy um, gloves to help when I looked after patients or to donate books for prison libraries Um, and um, I guess I I, um, fell in love with um, church and what it means to be part of a community that loves God loves each other and is trying to go out and bring love and light into the world Amazing. There is nothing quite like a joyful Christian funeral is there? Yeah. I mean it's it's something else (laughs) Yeah for sure it is Uh, it, it took me aback You'd spent this time serving in uh, volunteering in this hospice and you met someone who um, kind of led you down the prison uh, prison route in your life in setting up uh, this this uh, organisation to help prisoners in Africa. So tell us more about how that was birthed. Um, so I started out at the hospice. I then went to the government, main government hospital, spent three months looking after abandoned people who were dying there. And it was there that I met prisoners. Usually they were teenage boys, about the same age as me, often in prison for having underage sex, one of the most... Um, common offences in Uganda that has a maximum penalty of death. I saw wow. that these boys could die of starvation or dehydration in the hospital because the doctors and nurses would often shun them because of the prison uniform. Though Uganda is a very Christian country and almost everyone goes to um, church, there are definitely people who were, uh, it seemed to me, were deemed um, unworthy of love. 
people like um, a chap called Fred Muburu, who had been accused of stealing um, a goat in Uganda. He'd been taken to prison. He'd been there for a year waiting for his trial. The prison officers had beaten him and he'd gotten tetanus in his wound. Um, and for maybe two or three months, um, I looked after him with this ragtag bunch of um, uh, medical students and all sorts of people who came, came alongside and, and we tried to to, um, to help him to get better. But in right. fact, um, he died. And with um, prisoners in Uganda, if their bodies aren't collected within three days um, by their family, they go in a mass grave. But we brought him um, home with us and had a, a funeral and brought him a grave. And the process of um, journeying with Fred or a chap called Peter Kamia, who I met outside the hospital ward, he wouldn't, wasn't even allowed onto the ward. He had AIDS and cancer, Norwegian scabies, which made all the skin all over his body um, peel off. And he was about 20 or 21, and I wheeled him back onto the ward. I started uh, washing him, and um, some American missionaries came round and started praying for the patients. And other patients had um, nice bedding and family members. Peter had nothing, and they left the ward without paying for it, praying for him. And I called them back. I said, well, you pray for these people who've got people who love them, and they've got all the things they need, but you ignored this chap who, look at him, he's obviously got nothing. And I said, oh, sorry. And they said a prayer. And I said, well, what can you do practically? Because look, this guy's got nothing at all. Mm. I said, oh. Our pastor said we're only allowed to pray, uh, but we're not allowed to give anything. And I think as Christians, one of the challenges is what it looks like for us not to have double standards and thinking if we're in a situation or someone that we're related to is in a situation, um, how do we respond to it and wondering whether we can apply that to people we don't know. Anyway, for a week, looked after um, Peter and tried to um, to advocate for him, and um, and then he died. And uh, again and again, having experiences like this, I got mm. scabies um, from him. I think the proximity changes things. Right. And I saw that these um, prisoners, I'd not encountered them before. They were just like me, with similar hopes and fears and um, mistakes and uh, dreams. Um, and I saw that they required um, love. And I thought it would be fascinating to go to the prison they came from. Yeah. So I bulldozed my way into Uganda's maximum security prison. Um, As you do. Um, I love adventures. And I was a bit of a bulldozer then. Uh, my wife says that I've got Asperger's. Soon after we got married, she sent me for assessment. But the <laughs> person who did it said I was too high functioning. But definitely I see things in black and white. Um, and I wanted to see where these prisoners sure. came from. So I got in yeah. um, to the prison. It was built for 600 in uh, 1928 by the British and now it's got approaching 4,000 prisoners. I went to death row uh, which was built for 50 and then had 500. I was told about someone called Ed Mary and Padgy who'd been sentenced to death for murder. After 12 years on death row it turned out the person he'd killed was still alive. Oh my goodness. But it took another six years for him to be released and um, uh, it, about two thirds of prisoners in Uganda at that time hadn't had a trial. Sometimes they're in prison for two or four or five or ten years just awaiting trial. Um, went into the prison hospital and as I went in a teenage boy died and he was sewn up in a, a blanket to be buried in and it was just a horrible environment and I thought no one deserves to die in such a place so I came yeah. back to this country for two weeks and spoke at my old school and uh, my church and to my friends and family raised about £5,000 went back to Kampala went to every hotel I could find asking for mattresses and blankets and bedsheets got paint companies to donate paint and working with prisons and prison staff refurbished that hospital the hope was that if prisoners died there they'd feel valued and cared about from what I'd learned at Trinity Hospice where I realised that for those whose lives are measured in weeks or days or hours there, there can still be um, dignity and joy and hope yeah 
in them. In fact, the death rate at that prison dropped massively after that refurbishment right. because the prison doctors and nurses became motivated. They started showing up at work more often. The prison authorities added a laboratory six months later so diseases could be diagnosed on site. And it gave me a sense that even in situations that from the outside can look a bit um, hopeless or you don't know where to begin to make change, it was possible to do uh, to do small things uh, with great love, as Mother Teresa put it, um, which could... Um, could start an avalanche yeah. of change. I mean, it's clear already from the from the description you've given of these places you've been to. I think when we think of prison in this country, what you encountered in other nations is completely different. I think when we think of prisons in the West or in the UK, we think, well, yes, these people are locked up. Yes, they have it hard, but they still have basic human rights. They're going to have a mattress. They're going to have a bed. It won't be the best quality, but it will be something. Whereas what you're describing seems a, literally a world away and very difficult to imagine that people could be quite literally left to rot and not have any kind of medical or sounds like no medical support whatsoever even if they get very seriously ill i spent about a hundred and i visited about 130 prisons in um 15 or 16 countries mostly around africa but also in um england and ireland and romania and israel and um america and, and barbados certainly around africa i've seen things which have broken my heart again and again and again and been in um, countries where prisoners die of suffocation because the cells are so crowded there's not enough air the cell the size of this studio which is probably about 10 foot by 12 um, could have 40 or 50 men in it and half of them would stand for half the night and the other half would sit and then they'd swap around or prisons where women have given birth on the floor of their cells their children just die because they don't have access to the most basic treatment or prisons where inmates only get fed three days a week so four days they know they're going to have nothing to or prisons where children go out with their mothers have fall into cauldrons of boiling porridge. But in the midst of those challenges, there's often um, hope and I see resourcefulness amongst prisoners and prison staff and um, often a sense that change is possible and some aspiration. Whereas in the UK, for about five years, we've been bringing prison officers from Uganda and Kenya to spend time in Britain's prisons on three months of commerce, seeing what works and what doesn't. They're, they're usually initially very impressed by our infrastructure. Or one Ugandan lady went to Wandsworth prison and it was lunchtime and she saw that they could choose from chicken or beef or fish or pork she said wow it's like Sheraton but below the surface I think that often they're challenged by the levels of tension in our prisons or the numbers of prisoners killing themselves um, or the, the violence or the fact they'll go to education departments and sometimes they're empty um, so sometimes with poverty comes resourcefulness and sometimes right. with huge wealth comes complacency yes uh, what do you how do you almost make sense of this though I mean is this is this a case of there are just governments who are corrupt who don't care about the state of their prisons? I mean, on a kind of big picture level, why has it been allowed to get so bad? I think prisons in any country aren't sexy. I think saying we're going to invest deeply in the lives of prisoners isn't a vote winner. Sure, but I go back to what I said earlier that, you know, I think in the West we have certain fundamental, we like to think we do at least, certain fundamental human rights standards of uh, prisons and what you're describing is is so far below that. Uh, yeah, for sure it is. Um, although the general living standards um, in countries like Uganda or Kenya or as we start to prepare to go and work with women and children in prison in Sudan where they're still flogging and where they've done amputations and all sorts, conditions are generally um, tougher. Um, we work in um, post-colonial countries 
you go to court in Uganda, the judges have the same wigs that we introduce. We're, we work in prisons filled with vagrants and vagabonds and idlers and debtors. These are people in prison because of British laws, uh, people who are in prison for attempting suicide. Britain made it an um, um, offence to try and kill yourself. Um, women who've had children who become sick, they take them to the clinic, there's no treatment, the child dies, the mum's then arrested and taken to prison with the rest of her children for child neglect. These are British laws which on the whole um, haven't evolved and countries have grown massively Massively, um, since independence, Uganda's population was around 4 million um, at independence. It's now 10 times that. Prisons haven't been built to, to keep up. And so there's just uh, the system is overwhelmed. You can go to the police station and find that there's no police car. So if you want the police to come and investigate, you have to pay for a taxi for them. So it's no wonder that they then um, torture people to get them to confess because they're under pressure to be seen to be uh, productive. But I think there's no scope for us to be complacent here. And I think especially as Christians in the UK, we should be speaking up for our prisoners uh, here as well. And I think in light of legal aid cuts in this country over past years, uh, our prisons are filled with some of our most um, vulnerable often least educated um, people um, and although we, we have um, human rights safeguards in place and we have many passionate people working in the prison service we do still have challenges around um, violence or um, prisons having revolving doors and wondering how do we invest deeply in our most vulnerable people to break the cycle of yeah. crime. I'd love to talk more in detail now about African prisons project and I've heard you talk before about how it's often the poorest in society who find themselves locked up for crimes and it's often the richest in society who find themselves being lawyers and judges and barristers and it really kind of almost blew my mind when you said that I mean it's in some ways a very simple and obvious point but I'd never really thought about it before mm. until until you said it so so tell me more about how um, what you're doing links into that because I understand you've actually been training some prisoners or, or helping prisoners to get training in the law to actually be able to represent themselves we've worked for years to make prisons better but as we got to know uh, many prisoners we saw these are uh, poor people without um, connections and without resources. Some would say, I sold everything I had to pay a lawyer. The lawyer took my money, was never seen again. Lawyers are some of the people in society with the greatest agency and prisoners have the least. Uh, and we saw that it was difficult um, to create accountability there. Um, and we wondered why it is that... Um, as you said, often it's people who've been to the best schools and best universities who make the law and um, shape it and implement it and um, those who've had the least opportunities who feel the weight of it most um, heavily in their lives. And we wonder, what does it look like to create um, bridges? Uh, because uh, although one's poor, it doesn't mean that one's stupid. Mm. And we saw that actually the prisons that we worked in were filled with creative, resourceful, compassionate, kind people. I remember first going to death row in Uganda and seeing on the stairs going up to the gallows, a geography O-level class taking place. An inmate who'd done geography A-level was teaching his peers or meeting, meeting prison officers who come in on their day off to do a Bible study or who'd use their very modest salary to buy food for children growing up in prison who didn't have um, anything to eat. And so we wondered, what does it look like to take those who know what it is to suffer at the hands of the state, who might have been in prison on remand for years, or who've had their fingernails pulled out in the police station, or who've been um, convicted of a crime they didn't do, who have a hunger um, for the law, because of their first-hand um, suffering, which has formed their hearts, 
and who have a vision for how they can use the law to serve others and give them high-quality legal training to equip them to bring justice whilst in prison and upon release, and to create a transfer of um, legal knowledge, which is power, um, from uh, from the centre of society to the margins. And so we started making this shift in 2012, um, training prisoners and prison officers as paralegals, giving them um, short introductory courses in law, putting others through University of London law degrees, studying by correspondence, as Nelson Mandela did when he was in prison in South Africa, Mm. uh, wondering what might happen. Um, Now we've got a group of about 60 prisoners and prison officers in Uganda and Kenya um, who are studying with the University of London. 17 of those have completed their law degrees. We've had five students get first-class marks. We've got about another 150 who are working as paralegals. We've seen about 10,000 people so far released from prison in Uganda and Kenya having access legal support from our um, paralegals. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, joined you for The Profile this afternoon. Today my guest is the inspirational Alexander McLean. We're hearing all about his organisation, African Prisons Project, today. Also, just a reminder, that this show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. That's Premier Christianity magazine. It's the UK's leading Christian magazine. We feature interviews with all sorts of interesting people. Alexander has actually been featured himself in a recent issue of the mag we've also got features reviews news analysis and loads more content why not have a look at the magazine completely free of charge simply go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample type your address in and we will send to you in the post a free copy of the latest issue of the magazine we're literally giving it away for free get your first issue free with no obligation to subscribe premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample don't go anywhere we'll be right back after this premier christianity magazine in this month's issue we have an exclusive peek inside a modern christian utopia when we visit the Bruderhof in East Sussex, a 300-strong community where all possessions are shared, crime and divorce are non-existent, and life is centred around Christ. Plus, we discover the evangelists reaching out to goths, metalheads and satanists. And we say goodbye to Soul Survivor after 26 years of the UK's best-loved Christian youth festival. All this and more in August's issue. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. A very good afternoon to you and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. It's my job to interview some fascinating people from across the UK church and beyond. And my guest today on the show was also featured in a print issue of the magazine I edit, Premier Christianity magazine. But we're featuring the full interview now here on Premier Christian Radio so you can hear our chat in its entirety. We've already heard part one, so time now to delve into part two. I do hope you enjoy it. Let's listen in. I'd love to know how much of your work is motivated by a sense of there are people who are in prison unjustly and so we're going to teach them the law so that they can get themselves uh, free again or or how much of this is we're not saying if they're guilty or innocent we just believe they should have access to to education. 
when it comes to the prisoners and prison officers we work with, we're looking for those who've loved their neighbours as themselves whilst they're in prison, who've got a track record of serving their community, um, maybe being a leader in the prison school or church or football association or wherever else, who've got a vision for how they'll use legal knowledge to bring transformation to their community. But I'm, I belong to a community of people who've stolen, who've um, killed, who've raped, who've tortured, who've been tortured, who've been innocently imprisoned and sentenced to death. I think the, our starting point is that none of us are good. I can't say, well, my sin is quite small. Really, it's insignificant. But yours is really bad. Uh, so I can't engage with you. It's saying that actually even those who've made tremendous mistakes can also um, do great good. And if we look at the Bible, God used those who screwed up often quite significantly um, in powerful ways. If we think about how Paul was a terrorist, I guess the equivalent of an uh, um, ISIS member today, persecuting and killing um, Christians, but then was used um, very powerfully. It's saying, who are we to um, to write people off? And if they, they've shown during their time in prison that they can love and serve um, let us see how we can use them. I think about one of the prison officers we work with, and she said, well, before you trained me in law, I used to um, torture prisoners. Now I take great joy in going to court to speak on their behalf and win them their freedom. So it's it's exciting to be part of this community. Some um, are clearly innocently imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Others have done um, real wrong. But all of us are wondering, how can we use our lives to serve? How can we equip ourselves to go to the margins of society? Say, so you deserve justice too. The law uh, protects you as well as holds you to, yeah. to account. So I guess some of the people you're working with, you would freely admit they have done terrible things and frankly they do deserve to be locked up you might disagree on the conditions in which they're kept or the poor access they have to education but fundamentally you'd say no it's right there in prison yeah definitely um uh, I think that there's a debate about um, who benefits most from prison and um, in which situations prison should be used. And in this country, there have been conversations recently about um, what value short-term prison sentences add. But definitely there's a role for mm. prison. As an organisation, what we're interested in is justice. It's saying let's ensure that regardless of a person's wealth or poverty, each is treated equally by the law. Why should it be the case that someone like um, Fred, who died from tetanus, um, died that death um, because it, for, for stealing a goat or being accused of stealing a goat? Um, whereas if he'd had um, money to pay a lawyer, his case would probably have been dealt with much quicker. He might have got a fine and um, he'd still be alive today. And so what we're interested in is seeing the law applied fairly and the poorest and most marginalised uh, knowing that they're protected by it. I know one thing you're, you're personally very uh, have very strong convictions on is, is the death penalty. Uh, you're, I believe you're firmly against it. In fact, are you working on a, a PhD on the subject? So when I first went to uh, prison in Uganda when I was 18, I became really um, good friends with a prison officer who'd been involved in executions. He kind of took me under his um, wing and I got to know his family well and um, he made me feel at home in prison. But um, Uganda, um, some years before, had executed 28 people in an evening and they'd hang them but smash their heads with crowbars and hammers whilst they were hanging to speed up um, death. And this chap had been involved in that and... Um, I saw that although he was kind to me and he welcomed me, actually he had some issues with alcohol and his wife um, struggled with him or she spoke that she might leave him. And I thought, how often do we, as we're saying, let us be tough on crime and an eye for an eye and a life for a life, this kind of thing. How often do we think about the consequences of our, of, um, our bloodlust on those who actually have to do it? 
I became intrigued. So I thought, what does it look like to try and listen to the voices of those who make the the death penalty work? So the executioners and the prison um, chaplains and the prison um, doctors and the lawyers and judges involved in um, capital cases. And I um, conducted um, interviews around the world um, and um, heard again and again of people who'd been involved um, sometimes for many years in killing others who'd um, then had mental breakdowns or who'd um, got uh, heart disease or other um, their health had really crumbled or their marriages had broken down and they were left um, scarred or deeply damaged by it Um, and they were brutalised by what they were being called upon to do lawfully to to others in the end it was um it was too difficult for me to write up um because it was it, it was it was stepping into other people's pain whilst also establishing an organization that's stepping into other people's um pain maybe i'll do it uh, one day <laughs> but um i'm fascinated in um, making uh, helping unheard voices right. to be heard yeah um, i mean i guess it's a, a side of the debate that often gets missed right i mean yeah. we, we think a lot about well can we be sure this person really did the crime if we're going to you know, give them this ultimate punishment and we might have the kind of ethical debate or even bring the Bible in. But I think you're right. It's an overlooked area of what about the people who actually have to administer? It? I mean, I was I was reading about the um, uh, the Nuremberg trials after the after the Holocaust and um, how Nazi some Nazis, I believe, were, were hung after that. And I think there was actually a story of, of around that that period of history that two prison guards would press a button at the same time and neither of the two knew which button was the one that would actually release the the board that the person was standing on and then they would drop to their death and, and be hung. So clearly it, it is a, a consideration in, in a small way to think, well, could this damage this person's mental health? Is it better if there's some ambivalence as to which button it was that actually did the deed? Clearly those sorts of ways round are not good enough in your opinion. I guess it depends, and for uh, sometimes in parts of the world there'll be adverts for people to apply to take part in executions, and sometimes many people will um, put themselves forward. And I guess for some there might be some joy in killing others or, or being part of doing justice and upholding the law. But I, I um, I think I guess it's the case with soldiers as well that um, when professionally we're called on to hurt each other, um it's really possible that it can damage us unless we've um, lost our humanity to some extent, in which case we... um I guess it's like harming animals or, or children or harming anything. I don't think that that's our default position, that we want to do it, and so um, we have to find a way to override it. And I yes. think... Um, I think as human beings we're designed to live so, th- so think about an execution in America when someone's being electrocuted and they caught on fire um, whilst they were doing it and witnessing that I'm not sure that that's something you quickly um, forget and it sends the message actually it's okay to kill and I think that the state um, killing saying it well it's okay to kill in certain circumstances can leave people a bit uncertain because if you've got um, a spouse that provokes you and um, is doing all sorts of things to you maybe harming you and you think well actually they've pushed me to the limit some of your work actually led to the abolition of the mandatory death penalty. Tell us that story. It's exciting for us to work with women in prison and we work in um, in environments where girls tend to have far fewer opportunities than boys and women end up in prison um, often for um, the worst reasons. I remember meeting a woman in prison in Juba in South Sudan who'd been sentenced to death on her husband's behalf because the police couldn't catch him. So they caught the wife and she was to die in his place. 
I think about the um, interaction, the um, Bible between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, and how he said, and let him without sin cast the first stone when it came to stoning her. Um, our first woman to study law with the University of London is called Susan Chigula. She was sentenced to death in Uganda when she was 21. Um, from death row, she did her A-levels, teaching herself. She established a school. She was a leader in the prison church and netball team and dance troupe. It was clear that she was someone who was um, serving her community. We got her into the University of London in 2012 to study for her law degree by correspondence. Soon afterwards, she became one of their best performing students in human rights law. She was bright and that showed in her exams. She established an informal legal aid clinic in her prison to work on her peers' cases, but she also became the lead uh, petitioner in a case called Susan Chigula and 417 others against the Republic of Uganda. This case challenged the mandatory death sentence for murder and armed robbery. Formerly, a judge had no alternative but to sentence uh, someone to death if they'd been convicted of one of those offences. As a result of um, Susan's case, the mandatory death sentence was abolished and now wow. judges always have um, discretion as right. to whether to give the death penalty or not. Yeah. and Susan and hundreds of others were released from death row. She graduated in April last year with her University of London law degree. She's been out of prison for two years. She's travelled the world speaking out um, in relation to the um, the death penalty. Um, and I think that she's a source of um, hope, especially in Uganda, which has some of the highest rates of domestic violence in the world and women who go through huge amounts in the hands of their um, husbands and saying to such women, the law can um, protect you too. I believe, you know, you talk about that. Was it something like if someone used a knife to cut down a, a mango, that that would count as stealing and using a weapon and that would be mandatory death? Yeah. Or a Kenyan lawyer was telling me about a year ago about someone on a bus who had a, a compass, a little compass from a mass set, pointing it at people and saying, if you don't give me your phones, um, I'll stab you with this. You know, the blade's a third of an inch yeah. long. Um, but he had to be sentenced to death. Um, because it was armed robbery. Um, and I think that um, situations like this vividly make us question the law and what purpose it's serving and whether it's um, proportionate. Um, there are many other such instances um, which aren't perhaps um, so stark where we ask, well, is the law serving us as society by punishing someone and punishing someone mm. um, harshly in this in this way. Yeah. I've heard it said before that those who work in the law and who tend to be prosecutors think that everyone's guilty and those who work in the law and, and their defence uh, attorneys, or they tend to think that everyone's innocent. Do you find yourself leaning one way or the other? Um, so uh, death row inmates in Uganda call me a prisoner by choice but I'm also a magistrate here and send people to prison. So my interest is in justice. Um, as I said, I think there's a role for prisons. Um, I think the law can be a powerful tool for um, hope, but it also causes our societies to function or or not. And so um, I think it's it's appropriate that people um, are punished and that there are consequences for doing wrong. But I think that punishment should be proportionate. I think everything um, about prison should be about equipping the person for life afterwards. The punishment is being taken away from the community and losing freedom. But prison should be places of positive transformation. Mm. Um, and I think that many of those who go to prison haven't had easy lives beforehand. And maybe prison can be the place where their gifts and talents and potential is identified and nurtured. Yes. Well, we talked a lot about how some of the countries you work in in Africa, you know, the conditions have been terrible and obviously you're working 
working hard to change that. But I'm also reminded of the comment you made earlier of that person who visited a, a prison in this country and compared it to a, a chain of hotels. And there is sometimes, I think quite often actually, you see this kind of criticism often in the parts of the media uh, where people will write about how you know some of the prisons we have in this country, they're like three-star or four-star hotels and everyone has access to games, consoles and pool tables. And I'd just be fascinated to know your response to that. You know, it, I think we can probably all agree that some of the prisons you've worked in in other parts of the world are the most terrible conditions that no one should be subject to. But is there a case that we've gone too far in the other direction in this country and there are some prisons or some way of incarcerating people where, frankly, it isn't a punishment? It sounds more like a holiday. Uh, can you, Sam, imagine um, for 24 hours, say, um, having to eat when someone else tells you to, being locked up in a cell smaller than this studio, um, not being able to um, interact with the people you love when you want to? For me, um, even being um, locked in a palace, the idea of not having um, that control um, an agency over my life is a difficult one to imagine. And I think that we can fall into that trap of thinking, well, most of the people end up in prison. Their lives are probably pretty poor anyway. For a homeless person, at least they know they'll get a decent meal um, and a warm bed. But I think as um, Christians, if, our, if we actually believe that um, each person is created in God's image, and um, each person we meet is our brother or sister, um, and God knows the number of hairs on their head and cares about them as he does for us. We should be saying, well, what's going on? If we, th That's our aspiration for, as a society. We say, well, prison's better um, for, for people than their lives outside. How can we change that, especially as the fifth richest country in the world? We spend a lot of time talking about what we don't have, but actually we've got more than almost anyone else. Um, having visited many British prisons and knowing many um, people working in our prisons, there are passionate people working with conviction and courage um, to serve prisoners um, in the midst of cuts and um, staff shortages and the like. But um, if you look at um, reports done um, by the um, in prison inspectors, there are really significant challenges that we face um, here. And I, I think that we hear about prisoners having... Um, games consoles or televisions but if you think about your life and the lives of people you care about is that where joy comes from having a games console or a, a tv um, and if those things bring joy why are prisoners killing themselves in greater numbers than ever and um, before i think what brings um, joy and connection and hope is having people who believe in us people who see our uh, god-given potential people who um know us intimately and care about us and um i think that we should be asking ourselves what does it look like for our prisons to be places where we nurture and encourage because i don't know about you but for me I don't grow my life by people um, putting me down, challenging me, um, being merciless on me. But it's through um, kindness um, and compassion and challenge which calls out the, the better part of me that sometimes I don't see that I grow. And I think it goes for all of us. It's interesting looking at the words of, of Jesus and, you know, in the Gospels and particularly that line, when I was in prison, you visited me. Because I think perhaps parts of the church where we've understood the importance of serving the poor, the homeless, we're running food banks, homeless shelters, and perhaps prison ministry doesn't always um, register on our radars as much. Perhaps it is a forgotten area, but I'd love to know your perception of, of how you feel Christians in the UK kind of perceive your work and perceive the work of, of other Christians like you who are working in this area. Is there a sense of real support, of understanding the kind of Christian imperative to care for these people, or are you still encountering attitudes that, that might by some be described as quite harsh of, well, they're guilty, lock them up, throw away the key kind of mentality? Um, many of our supporters, both individuals and um, foundations, uh, are Christian. 
Um, and as you say, I think that Jesus gives us an obvious, really clear remit as Christians to serve those in prison. I think that there can be a risk for us as Christians in the UK of losing um, proximity to each other. And I think sometimes um, churches can be the most um, divided or segregated places in, in society. And often we worship alongside people whose backgrounds and life experience is quite similar to us. I think that proximity is what changes mm. um, things for us. And that when we get close to people who are different from us, we see um, God in them. Um, and Jesus can speak to us through um, th- through those in really difficult situations. Mother Teresa said that um, it's amongst the poor and the destitute that we see Jesus in his most distressing uh, disguises. Um, and so I think the challenge is knowing what it looks like for us to step out from what's um, comfortable and to become proximate. I was speaking at church last Sunday about um, Bartimaeus and Jesus um, giving him his um, side. And the fact that Jesus was with this big crowd of followers of Jesus, Bartimaeus was calling out and the, Jesus' followers were saying, be quiet. And I wonder how often we as Christians see those um, who require love and we, um, we become awkward or we try and quieten them. But Jesus stopped. And he listened and he responded and he responded with um, mercy to someone who I guess stank, who was shunned and rejected by his community. Um, And I think that for us to be people who stop and who um, get close and who respond with mercy to those who are in um, difficult situations, it can um, fascinate people and intrigue them and ask, why is there this difference in us? Why are we stepping out where others don't want to to step out? And we say, well, it's it's God in us and it's because Jesus commanded us to do so. I think this is how we can um, bring light and hope and be salt in our community. And it can be, um, it's really awkward getting uncomfortable and Sometimes we don't have the words to say. Um, but I, I think that there's uh, prisons are fertile ground and people are ready to encounter God there. We put mm. on a TEDx conference um, with about 3,500 prisoners and prison officers there at the maximum security prison wow. in Uganda last April. We had a chap called Shane Taylor there. He was apparently Britain's sixth most notorious prisoner in prison for several attempted murders. Um, in prison, he stabbed two prison officers. He went to uh, Alpha in prison, and afterwards the prison chaplain prayed with him, and the Holy Spirit came on him. He ran back to his um, towards his prison cell, and there were two officers nearby, and they ran out of the way because they knew how he was a dangerous guy. They thought he was going to attack them. He said, it's real! Jesus is real! So God's God's there, and God will, can work in prisons in amazing ways, and we can be instruments mm. Um, of that, Teresa Avila said that Christ has no body now, um, but ours, no hands, no feet on earth, but ours. And I think that as Christians, we can take Christ um, into um, into tricky situations mm, yeah. and, and be agents of love. One thing that strikes me about that is is sometimes I think Christians will say when, when trying to share our faith with others, often the first difficulty we might come across is people say, I'm all right, actually, I'm fine. I don't need God. Life's going all right. You know, I've got my, got my house, got my job, got my mortgage, my wife and kids, got a car. don't need this thank you whereas of course in prisons often you are encountering people who know they've messed up know they've made mistakes and know that they really need forgiveness and it is fascinating as you say that things like alpha um, are very often very popular in prisons and often many people do find themselves turning to god and saying actually i know i need forgiveness and and reach out to god in that moment Uh, i guess you've you've seen some of that yourself have you yeah for sure i think um I think that we live in a society where our success um, 
and the perception of what's made, meant to make us happy often comes with the things that we have, the mortgage, the car, um, uh, sending our children to the right schools and this kind of thing. And I think as Christians we can easily succumb to it and the fact that if we have more things and more status then we'll have more joy. I think that sometimes these can distance us from um, from God. And I mm. think that in prisons or um, spending time with homeless people or those whose brokenness is on the surface, yeah. as many of our brokenness is a bit hidden yes. beneath the mortgages and cars Absolutely. and all sorts of things, yeah. there can be scope for life-changing, vivid um, conversations. There are people who will speak with openness and vulnerability in a way we don't, because sometimes yeah. we don't want to be exposed for um, as not being 100% yes. together. Absolutely. Um, I guess it's it's less that, you know, these, these people in prison need God more than we do. It's more just that we all need God, but yeah. they've understood it in a way that as you say we get blinded by other things don't we but i think that the interaction um with those um on the margins as it were um for those of us who have all those things which can lead us to say i'm okay yeah um it can it, it can um we can encounter God through them and our faith can be revitalized and we can see things which move us deeply and give us boldness and courage and um, which transform us and um, the people that we look down upon can actually be um, God's messengers in our lives. And um, I, I was on death row in Uganda late last year with a, um, a chap from a privileged background. Um, he'd been to great schools, been to Oxford, had um, an exciting career. So I look at these um, guys on death row and I think if there's a God... Um, that cares about me and would answer my prayers but lets these guys be in this condition I don't know if I'd want to worship him I said to him how do you know what God's doing in their lives maybe you think well I'm 99% okay and these guys are 99% not okay but you don't know how God's sustaining them you don't know what um, experience they've had of provision or of joy or greater connection or of being um, loved and so I think for me, I'm trying to guard against the sense that, well, as I have a salary and more stuff, then I'm I'm fine. Um, and to remember that um, often God is has been most vivid in my life during the times when actually things haven't been okay, mm-hmm. and I've I've lost those things which give me a sense of control and agency, and I've had to call out to Him, and He's responded in ways that have given me a vital and um, vibrant faith in that moment. But then when things get better, it can slip away a bit. Yeah. So if if I were to give you permission, Alexander, just just for a moment just for just for a minute or two give you permission to you don't have to be humble at all in the in this next question and say what have been the biggest uh, success stories of your work through the african prisons project so far what have been the things that stand out um so definitely there's been power in seeing people who've been sentenced to death and um, win their freedom um and i spoke about susan's story or um a chap called Morris who was sentenced to death in Kenya uh, about a dozen years ago. He became one of our first Kenyan University of London students in September of last year. His fellow students wrote his appeal for him, wow. went to court and he had his conviction overturned and wow. he was released and now he's working with us bringing um, justice to people at a prison outside of Nairobi. Um, with our first man in Kenya to study law with the University of London called Pete Uko. He graduated with his diploma in law from the University of London in 2014. We had a lovely ceremony at his prison. A senior judge came. He was covered in the media. A labourer working for a Chinese construction site um, saw it. Um, this site was in Nairobi. He saw it and remembered it sometime later when a dog belonging to the manager of his site bit him. He 
said to the manager, your dog's injured me, I need you to pay for my medical treatment. He said, I won't pay and you're fired. This man had been earning a few pounds a day before that, then had no income. So he knew that he couldn't get a lawyer, but he remembered that Pete was at committee maximum prison. So he went to the prison, said to the warden at the gate, you've got a lawyer inside, I want to see him. They let him in to see Pete, and Pete sued his former employer um, and won him a payment of just under £10,000. The idea that one goes to prison to access justice is countercultural is a beautiful one for me. Um, I'm, I'm very proud when I think about some of the prison officers we work with. There's one called Paul Oriema, who works at Oyam Prison in northern Uganda. We trained him and two other warders at his prison in 2013, I think, as basic paralegals. Within three months of us doing that training, they got a quarter of the people in their prison um, released, whether on bail or being acquitted at trial. And with pride, he'll take you to the homes of ex-prisoners who he's gone to court and spoken on their behalf. And so seeing um, people build bridges and people that society doesn't necessarily value um, who've stepped out with courage and been agents of love and hope in the lives of um, others or having a moment early last year, um, seeing a prison officer in Kenya washing the feet of a prisoner. We wonder what it looks like to cultivate um, humility, because often the law can make us um, proud, and what it looks like to um, build community through sharing meals and having times of um, shared worship and um, prayer, open um, to Christians, uh, Muslims, people of um, any faith and none, believing that Jesus can count, encounter any of us um, just as we are. Um, and seeing unexpected um, relationships um, form has been very beautiful. It's exciting for me to think of the many thousands of people who tonight are at home with their families rather than in prison because they've accessed legal support from our community. Um, and some people might say, well, their lives were rubbish anyway, and um, how good is it for them to be at home? But I think fundamentally, we're, we're designed for being free. I think with freedom comes um, the opportunity to um, to use our gifts and talents and God-given um, potential um and i'm excited about the seeds which um we're um involved in planting in people's lives outside of uganda and kenya i i think there's the idea of being a prophetic witness and saying well there's a group of people who are hated by many a lot of people say well how could you work with people who've murdered or um, raped or um, stolen or whatever um, and people who aren't meant to love each other, the idea that prisoners and prison officers can study and serve side by side. In fact, we're, we're growing together and loving each other and trying to serve together. I think it, it maybe we can plant seeds of hope that it, when it looks like there's no hope or it looks like our differences can't be overcome, actually there's this little bunch of people in our flawed um, and struggling way who are trying to grow in love. Um, and I hope that um, that can plant hope for anyone um, and any organisation that's in the midst of struggle yeah so what does the average day look like for you now um as much as um i feel um, most alive when i'm in prison and the times i have in prison make me more courageous and connected and bolder i'm inspired by the resilience and the resourcefulness of the people that i belong to the majority of my time is spent um, raising funds and often i'm with people who have um huge wealth and um, resources Um, uh, it's a a pleasure for me to lead my team and to to steward them Um, uh, but um, the reality is that I uh, my one of my main roles is mobilizing resources yeah and trying to make our voice heard many people who are passionate about service and doing good just haven't thought about the needs of prisoners especially the needs of prisoners in in Africa and so challenging people saying oh yeah these guys exist and they're humans like you and they've made mistakes like you 
and there's a God in them, like in you, and that they can serve and have something to offer society as you have. I think that um, each of us each day has opportunities to show um, love in small ways and to be kind in small ways. I think that's all we can do. And it doesn't matter where you're um, working or living or how you're spending your time. That can be our posture, our outlook on life. And we don't need to look at others who are doing things which um, look um, different or tricky for us. Rather, look at our own situation and remember as someone on death row um, in Uganda told me when I was 18 and starting out in life you can do what you can and what you can't can it that's a wonderful place to leave it Alexander thank you so much for coming on the show thanks it's been good speaking to you